Who can name the television program which had the constant refrain, now for something completely different? Anybody know? David? Monty Python? Well done. So, English sense of humour is still up and running. And uh, this is going to be completely different, okay? Um, I had to kind of imagine what the previous speakers were going to say, and I uh, kind of hoped that they would be generally in line with the Westminster Confession. I didn't imagine they'd be quite as in line as Lane, um, but I had to imagine they would be, and that what we would preach uh, would be Protestant theology. So it's good, I'm relieved, and I haven't been quite so stressed as I was when I was preparing this. Uh, one of my favourite historical characters um, is Sir Francis Walsingham. Uh, you may know him. He was a witness to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. And one historian says of Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen's Secretary under Elizabeth I, he was the cool organising intelligence at the centre of things. Okay, he was the spy master. He was the spy lord of the Elizabethan church. Walsingham once said, there is less danger in fearing too much than too little. There is less danger in fearing too much than too little. Brothers, let me remind you of something after these wonderful two days, a sort of rich buffet feast of theology, and I don't in any way want to downplay the importance of theological study. Let me just remind you of modern Britain. Let me remind, me, remind you of your congregations that you will go back to. I have three words for you. Sunday is coming. You're going to go back to your congregations. You're going to go back to your communities to teach and to preach the gospel of Christ. And brothers, we need to constantly hold before our own hearts and minds the terrible biblical illiteracy of our modern Britain. It's terrifying. We live in a time of spiritual famine for God's word. How else could we have got to the point in this great nation that a conservative-led government would seek to introduce legislation for same-sex marriage? How many times have you heard people say on the radio or the television or in the community, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never condemned anybody. Jesus didn't judge, so why should we? We live in a time of horrific spiritual death, both within the professing church and outside the professing church. And although there are wonderful signs of life and there are wonderful encouragements in many of our fellowships, we go back to a hard work. One of you seen the, the two volume, uh, the new two volumes from Banner, uh, Princeton and the Christian Ministry. Uh, just the sermons that were preached at Princeton to the ministerial classes over about 150 years. Charles Hodge has a great uh, sermon in there on the teaching office of the church. And Hodge says it's just an amazing exposition of the responsibility of the Church of Christ to teach the world. But Hodge says this, we have no adequate conception of the magnitude or difficulty of the task. We have no adequate conception of the magnitude or difficulty of the task. And this is our task. We are here together to fellowship and pray and to gather around God's word because we want to preach the gospel of Christ. 
and to teach the gospel of Christ to modern Britain or to wherever God calls us is a task of unimaginable difficulty for us. We've learned and been reminded of two great central gospel truths over these last two days. Salvation is fundamentally about representation. Salvation is fundamentally about representation. We died in Adam. We are saved in Jesus Christ, our King and our Head. And salvation is about recreation. That is what the last Adam image reminds us. Salvation is about God's work, not just of saving my soul. Wonderful though it is that God forgives us and redeems our souls. But it's about God's work of redeeming his whole creation. In Greg Beale's wonderful new book, New Testament Biblical Theology, he talks about the repeated new creational expectation of an Adamic king throughout the Old Testament, the repeated new creational expectation of an Adamic king throughout the Old Testament. And what we've been reminded of over these last two days is that that is the story of the Scriptures. That is what the Bible is about. The Bible is about a new creation through a saving king. And what I want to do for us this afternoon is to pick up a couple of passages. We may have to pick these up in the discussion afterwards, but I want to pick up a couple of passages and offer you some theological exegesis in light of the truth that the main story of the Bible is new creation through an Adamic king. Now, I know things are bad in England. I lived here for 10 years. I married one of your girls. But I'm sure you don't want to go back on Sunday and preach about Adam to Adam's race. Um, I hope you're not fired up after the conference to go and preach about Adam. I hope you haven't been texting your wives. You know, I can't wait to get back and get stuck into a topical series on Adam. Our work over these two days and all our hard thinking about Adam only has virtue if it results in clearer, sharper, richer theological preaching of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know from talking with some of you over the last few days that this is what really thrills you most about this theological feast. It gives you context and depth and texture and power to proclaim the Son of God. Donald MacLeod says, The theological process does not exist for itself. It exists only as a preparation for preaching. If it does not issue in proclamation, it is an abortion or a stillbirth. The theological process does not exist for itself. It exists only as a preparation for preaching. If it does not issue in proclamation, it is an abortion or a stillbirth. I spent many years in Oxford studying And that quotation was in my head for most of those years. Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm thinking about is a preparation for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm really surprised this quotation from Thomas Goodwin hasn't appeared earlier in the conference. And I can only put it down to a kind providence. Thomas Goodwin said, In God's sight there are two men... Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging at their girdle strings. Just two men, 
the first man and the second man. In other words, as we've seen over these last few days, to think about Adam is to think about Christ, the pattern of the one who is to come. They are the only two representatives before God. To speak of one is to speak of the other. It's why our contemporary theological confusion about the historicity of Adam is so catastrophic for our preaching. For when we abandon the scriptural doctrine of a representative Adam, we will soon cast aside the representative Christ, and all that will be left will be therapeutic, moralistic, Pelagian self-salvation. When we have no representative Adam, we have no representative Christ, and we have no good news for anyone. Isn't it significant that in his last great theological controversy, Augustine returned again and again to the significance of Adam for understanding Christ? Julian of Aclanum and Augustine exhausted themselves arguing over the interpretation of events in the garden. But the significance should never be lost on us, brothers. In every generation, Pelagius and his self-salvation must be put to death with the theology of the two representative men, Adam and Christ, sin and grace. There are only two men. And the story of the Bible is the story of a new creation through a new Adamic king. I'd like to look at the two passages that we had read to us, Psalm 1 and Matthew 13. And I would like to suggest to you, at least, that our understanding of the first and the second man should inform and shape our theological exegesis and any implications we draw from the texts. So I'm going to take these two passages. I assume that you know them relatively well. I suspect if you're a preacher, you have preached on both these passages more than once, so it's not going to be a tight exegesis of the passages. What I want to do is give you these pointers to theological exegesis and look at some significant implications from that exegesis, and then we'll move on to some final principles as we close. So first of all, Psalm 1. I'm glad Lane is gone because, when, you know, he, he edited a book, and there's an essay in the book. Uh, it's a feshrift for Richard Gaffin. It's a great book if you can get your hands on it. And D.A. Carson has an essay in it, about 50 pages long, summarizing interpretations of Psalm 1. I think it's called... Something like ruminations on Psalm 1 or or something else Carson-like. And Don Carson writes this. He says, some voices, especially popular ones, especially popular ones, interested as they are in preaching Christ from the whole Bible, infer that Psalm 1 is really describing Jesus Christ. According to these voices, Failure to preach Psalm 1 in this way is indicative of a deep failure to preach Christ from the whole Bible. Carson then asks of those who read Psalm 1 messianically, surely Christian readers are right to look for clear textual markers, textual markers, before they affirm such connections in such straightforward claims about the Psalm's reference. In 50 pages of survey, The messianic interpretation of Psalm 1 receives less than half a page and not a single footnote and not a single footnote for the popular voices. So I'm not exactly sure to whom he refers. In my experience, the popular voices are arguing in the other direction. 
Psalm 1 is taken as a straightforward example of wisdom literature. There are two ways to live, brothers. Be wise. Read your Bible and pray every day and you will grow, grow, grow. Ralph Davis, Steel Ralph Davis, in his little book, The Way of the Righteous and the Muck of Life, argues emphatically against any redemptive historical exegesis of Psalm 1. In his preface, he writes, The second matter involves some criticism some will have of these expositions. I do not take a Christological approach and explain these Psalms as speaking of Jesus, apart from the ones that obviously do, like Psalms 2 and 8, that are used in the New Testament. Now, in broad terms, I would like to argue that a redemptive historical hermeneutic, a theological hermeneutic that takes into account the story of the Bible, requires us to read Psalm 1 within the fundamental context of the first and the second man. Wisdom literature is not standalone advice for your best life now. Proverbs wasn't, it, wasn't Proverbs written for the son, the son of David. More specifically, let me suggest to you a number of exegetical pointers in Psalm 1. First of all, Psalms 1 and 2 clearly stand as a doorway into the Psalter. And I know we've been warned about the assured results of modern scholarship, and I take that to heart. But Psalm 1 begins in verse 1 with the blessed man. And Psalm 2 ends in verse 12 with the blessed who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is undoubtedly messianic. I doubt we need to have a heated debate here today about the identity of Zion's true king. Psalm 2 speaks of the messianic hope in its royal aspect. Psalm 1 in the more basic creational aspect. Psalm 1 is about the new man. See, significantly, the shadow of the first man falls over Psalm 1. Can you miss this? What does the sinner do? How is the sinner described in Psalm 1? He neglects the revealed word of God. He seeks guidance and wicked counsel. He is driven from God's presence. He is made worthless and he perishes. So the sinner in Psalm 1 is Adam and Adam's sons who are an icon of his rebellion. He cannot stand. He has fallen. And as Paul says, we have borne the image of the man of dust. Because sinners are like chaff that the wind blows away. So here Psalm 1 reminds us that the story of the first man is also the story of every sinful man and woman. Just last week I came out of a shop in Ulster, even in Ulster. And one woman in a lesbian couple was wearing a leather jacket with the words, Respect me. I was born this way. Respect me. I was born this way. Now isn't it a tragic indictment of our ignorance as a nation that this argument, I was born this way, is aired frequently in current debates over same-sex marriage and stands almost entirely unchallenged. I was born this way. And haven't you heard the voices in the professing church echoing this argument? Haven't you heard voices in your own congregations 
echoing this argument. Because if you haven't heard them, you may not be listening. Of course we are born this way. I was brought forth in iniquity. That is the fundamental problem of the Bible story. That is Adam's problem. That is our problem. Adam has given to us a fallen nature. And brothers, we need to retell the human story so that sinners can understand their own story. There are no brute facts to be respected. All our lives are part of a bigger picture. You see, timelines... I don't do Facebook, I'm sorry. It's too complicated. Timelines seem very important to many people. Well, your timeline begins not at the point when you register for Facebook, but when God formed your father Adam from the dust of the earth. The fallen sinful life, every fallen sinful life, is but a brief recapitulation of the sin of the first representative man. Born in Adam, living like Adam, dying like Adam. It's fascinating, isn't it? How people respond to evil. Just read the comment thread on the Daily Mail online. There is no sense of human solidarity. Our instinctive reaction is to mark part of the human race as evil. There was a particularly unpleasant uh, case on, on the news last week, so I looked up the article on the Daily Mail online to read the comment thread to get you one. And here's one example from a recent, the recent article. I'll not tell you what the, the story was about. But the comment was this. It was right at the top because everybody had clicked on it to approve of it, to push it up the list. What kind of creature would do such an evil thing? I hope he gets everything he deserves in prison. What kind of creature would do such an evil thing? Indeed, what kind of creature would do such an evil thing? What kind of creature? One very like you and one very like me. And when we read Psalm 1, the shadow of the first man falls across all sinful life, rejecting God's word, listening to evil counsel, falling into sin, driven from God's presence, becoming worthless, and falling in judgment. And that is a story that most people in modern Britain do not know. It fits all the facts of human experience better than any other account. And yet it is the one account that most people are completely ignorant of. A few years ago I heard a sermon by Tim Keller in New York and it was about sin. And he dealt with this issue, this modern myopia, by using an illustration from Philip Roth's book, The Human Stain. I'm tempted to ask, has anybody read The Human Stain? One or two. If you haven't read it, I'm not commending you read it. Um, I'm really shocked, brother, that you've read it. Uh, uh, It's really deeply disturbing. Like all Philip Roth's books are deeply disturbing. But what it demonstrated to all the hearers that day, and and there were about 2,000 young adults in the middle of New York, what it demonstrated to them was that we cannot stand apart from the human problem. We are the human problem. 
And that point which seems so obvious and basic to us as Christians is the last thing modern people think. And it is genuinely helpful for people if we use films and books and poetry to demonstrate the fallen solidarity of humanity. Because we live in a vague and oddly optimistic world. And part of our responsibility is to highlight the depravity around us and the depravity that is deep, deep within us. For one reason or another, I've had to be on a lot of planes in the last six weeks. Uh, we drift into questions of common properties and things like that just for a moment, but no quantum mechanics. One of the common properties of flights over the last week, it happened again early on Monday morning coming out of Belfast. Girl beside me, lovely girl, we exchanged a few words, hello, she wanted to go to sleep. And then when she was getting ready to get off the flight, she picked up her bag and her book. What was her book she was reading? Fifty Shades of Grey. Every single flight I have been on in the last two months, and it's quite a few, I have walked up and down the aisles, and I have seen woman after woman after woman after woman reading either the book or a Kindle version of Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, I'm Northern Irish, and I know we do crazy things. I am tempted now just to stop and say to people, are you a pervert? Because I have looked at that book, and it is insanely dark. And we need to ask people from our pulpits why millions and millions and millions of women in our nation are reading something that is so corrupted and so corrupting. We need to show the depravity around us and the depravity that is deep within us and that our story is just the story of our father Adam relived in the same way and with the same consequences. I just don't think Psalm 1 is directly about my failure in my personal devotions. Because we all have massive failures in our personal devotions. And if we take Psalm 1 in that way, failure is not portrayed as weakness on the road of faith. Failure is portrayed as rebellion on the road to disaster and to destruction. Psalm 1 is not about the Christians' failure in their devotions. Psalm 1 is about the Adamic character of human rebellion, rejecting God's word, listening to evil, becoming worthless, being driven from God's presence, falling in judgment. But surely also the messianic hope of a second true man, the seed of the woman, shines brightly from Psalm 1. This man in Psalm 1, walking and standing and sitting day and night, is utterly devoted to the Lord's Torah. He is the one of the godly line of Adam and of Abraham and David. He is truly happy because, look at the text, he is truly separate from sinners. He lives for the joy of obedience. Perhaps the clearest textual markers in the psalm come in the exquisite metaphors, if I may, 
of life and fecundity. This new man in Psalm 1 is a fruitful tree of life, planted by a river, yielding abundant fruit. Now, you're all lovely, but it's not you. He is, a per- he is permanent and he prospers and he is known by the Lord and he is supremely blessed. He is like Adam before the fall. Now, my brothers, this can't be any man with his quiet time. It can't be me not given to evil counsel. It can't be me prospering in all that I do. This is no more a description of a believer than Psalm 2. Now, our response to the use of this psalm, and it's very frequently used. I read a great devotional online by Creflo Dollar. The wonderfully named Creflo Dollar. Um, this psalm is used by the peddlers of the prosperity gospel to tell us that those of us who read the Bible and trust the Lord will prosper in all that we do. But our response to the prosperity gospel needn't be to spiritualize the text, nor to find some refuge in special pleading about rhetorical exaggeration for effect. No, this man really does prosper in all that he does. He always meditates, always obeys, is known by the Lord. And perhaps most significantly for our theology of the first and the second man, he is clearly the eschatological man. He is the man who goes through the judgment. He stands in the judgment. He hears, he prospers, and he stands in the judgment. The wicked are blown away in the judgment, and he is known by the Lord. Surely the blessed man of Psalm 1, excuse me, Augustine says, is to be understood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord man. Luther adds that the first Psalm speaks literally concerning Christ. He is the only blessed one and the only man from whose fullness they have all received that they might be blessed. Augustine and Luther, popular voices indeed. Implications of this theological reading of Psalm 1. Well, the implications of this exegesis, I think, are rather dramatic. On the moralistic, or perhaps I should say the individualistic reading, Psalm 1 is primarily a bracing exhortation to flee bad company. And read the scriptures before you are swept away in judgment. I don't want to deny that any of that is good and wise counsel. But for those who are struggling and failing in their life of obedience, the psalm takes on terrifying overtones. For those who do not meditate constantly, flee readily, harvest regularly and prosper continually, Psalm 1 only gives you the prospect of judgment. Yet if we allow the great theological paradigm of the two representative men to inform our reading of the text, the implications of Psalm 1 are rather different. My Lord Jesus Christ, the second and true man, the one righteous Son of God, has triumphed over sin and judgment. He stands, and he is known by the Lord, and perhaps most gloriously of all, he prospers in all that he does. You see, what am I to do when I read Psalm 1 and feel so deeply the Adamic character of my own life? 
So one of the things we can most helpfully do for our people is to remind them of what the Westminster Confession calls the unregenerate parts of their nature. That no matter how well we appear to be doing as Christians, we aren't. My foolishness, my failures, my fruitlessness, my fear. What does someone say to a sinner like me who needs a saviour? What does it say? What does it say about his work in our souls when all we can sense at times is weakness and failure? What does someone say? It says, all that he does, he prospers. This aspect of Christ's representation and the words of Isaiah 53, verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, brings us nicely to our second text. Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. It would help me if you flicked through in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Now, I have heard and read more odd teaching on this passage than few others that I could name. When I was preparing for this, I was going to make up a hypothetical amalgamation of poor commentary. And then I came across this passage on the Ligonier website, which seems to say every wrong thing that I wanted to highlight. (laughs) From a devotional on the parable of the sower. Though this parable is more commonly named after the sower of the seed, the parable of the soils is a more fitting title. The role of the sower in the story is important, but the parable's point is twofold. First, to explain why different soils, different people, respond differently to the gospel, and second, to invite us to examine ourselves to think about the kind of soil we hope to be. So what is wrong with that commentary? Well, there are two chief problems. First, Why is the parable commonly named the parable of the sower? Might this be anything to do with Matthew 13, verse 18? Hear then the parable of the sower. (laughs) I just threw it out. We can come back in the Q&A. This renaming of the parable, which I have heard so many times, it's not like someone running their nails down an old school blackboard actually betrays everything about the way the parable is misread. Indeed, the second problem, that the parable is intended to invite us to examine ourselves, to think about the kind of soil we hope to be, is so banal and irrelevant to the text as to be completely meaningless. The parable is not about the soils. It's about the sower. It's not about sinners. It's about the Saviour. It's not about preachers and their insecurities about results. It's about the great prophet sent in the last days and the effectiveness of his ministry. And isn't our misreading of this parable worrying in light of our Lord's words? Do you not understand this parable? Mark's Gospel. How then will you understand all the parables? (laughs) See, until we see that the parable of the sower is a parable about the sower... We will read it not in salvation historical terms, but in individualistic and moralizing categories, and we will get it wrong. I grieve to think of 
Mrs. Smith and her husband and their children going home from public worship, wondering in the car, well, boys and girls, what sort of soil do you hope to be? The immediate context in Matthew is vital. Matthew 12 contains an astonishing account of the Pharisees' assault on Jesus. Matthew 12, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The greatest accusation that is ever made against our Lord's public ministry is that you do your work by the power of Satan. Christ's ministry is satanic. That is the accusation. His limited effectiveness, but the effectiveness that he has, is because he is only able to act by the power of Satan. And it's in this context of dramatic opposition and accusation that Christ tells the parable to explain the way in which he is bringing in the kingdom of heaven. The sower is the son of man. We know that from the parable of the weeds, which follows, where Jesus himself says, the sower is the son of man. And the sower sows the seed. By the word, a new world is born. The kingdom of God comes. It's that simple. Herman Ritterboss says, It has not unjustly been observed that the mystery of the parable does not lie in its obscurity or complexity, but in its very simplicity. The mystery here that so many people miss is because it is so simple. For our purposes today, I simply wish to note that these common misreadings of the parable could be avoided if we had detached ourselves from a lazy, evangelical, and I mean that in the worst sense of the word, it's a great word, I mean it in the worst sense of the word, a lazy evangelical individualism, and attached ourselves more deliberately to the great first and second man paradigm. For again, surely the first Adam's shadow and the last Adam's eschatological glory dominate this parable. The first Adam's shadow. Think for a moment. The cursed ground. The weeds and thorns. The hard work and the wasted effort. The created order itself disordered. The life-giving sun now scorching the earth. The birds once named by the first man now frustrating his labours. And perhaps most deliberately reminiscent of Genesis, Satan coming to steal the word of God away. And the second man's glory. Finally, the parable points to one who will exercise dominion over the earth. Isn't that what the sower is doing? Exercising dominion over the earth. And by his word, dominion is exercised, not by a human sword, but by the glorious word of the gospel, the kingly rule of God comes. And creation itself is restored in eschatological glory in the plenteous harvest. You see, allowing the great image of Adam to fall on this text drives us to read the parable positively and not negatively. It's not a negative parable at all. It's about the coming of the kingdom of God. And often when this passage is preached, it sounds like a quarter of the seed was wasted on the world, a quarter of the seed was wasted on the devil, a quarter of the seed was wasted on the flesh, and a quarter bore some fruit. But the parable says nothing about these proportions. Having prepared the good soil, do you think the sower cast three quarters of his seed on rocks? Weeds, pathway. I work in rural churches and I know what it's like to be treated as someone who knows nothing about farming. 
But I know my farmers, you sow the seed on the good soil. Oh yes, some seed fell there. The word is openly preached to all. But the sower sows for the harvest. And indeed, when this parable does talk about proportions, it is entirely positive and not negative. The seed that fell on good soil produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. These are vast, vast proportions for the sower. This is a miraculous yield. The sower of the word, the son of man, the last Adam, will exercise dominion over the earth by his word. The kingdom of God comes by the preaching of the son of God, not by the power of Beelzebub. What are the implications of reading the text this way? And I would commend to you here Herman Ritterboss's book, The Coming of the Kingdom, which is one of my favorite books on a redemptive historical reading of the Gospels. Well, the implications, I think, here are very clear. Although the world, the flesh, and the devil reject the word of God's kingdom, I am to receive Christ's words and trust him. I am to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, the second man, the last Adam. And no matter how it appears in the world, his word will bring his kingdom and will extend the divine harvest to the ends of the earth. And so the parable of the sower drives the mission of the church. It is the apostles, I think, who are the ones who bear the fruit a hundred and sixty and thirtyfold and take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. So two passages of scripture, theological exegesis that tries to be informed by the great biblical paradigm of the two representative men that avoids individualistic readings of the text and sees the bigger picture of Adam and Christ. So what does this mean for us? What are the take-home points at the end of the conference? Well, I want to give you four four take-home points. Here's the first. Stay expository and clear and theological. Stay expository and clear and theological. I am absolutely convinced that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And that God's means for teaching people His truth is the clear expositionary preaching of the Holy Scriptures. Scripture teaches us this. Christian history testifies to this. And our experience at our best confirms it. And we live in an age of famine. We were on holiday overseas recently and we drove for three hours to get to church. And we drove for three hours to get home as well. And as one of my boys said, that's a long way, Daddy. And there was no talk. There was no sermon. There was nothing. It was the only evangelical meeting in that country that night. And there was no biblical exposition. And we came hungry, and we went home hungrier. 
And for many, many Christian people, that is their regular experience of church. We kid ourselves, brothers, that people don't want to learn. Christian people are hungry people. People in whom the Spirit of God is working are hungry people and they want to be fed. And as we take God's Word and break it up and feed it to them, we will teach them, maybe not in the language and in the concepts of this conference, but informed by the theology of this conference, we will teach them the Bible and feed them from God's Word. And I just exhort you, brothers, to stay expository and to stay clear and to stay theological and to give yourselves afresh to teaching God's Word. Second, Remember the indicatives and the imperatives of the gospel. Now, I'm preaching to Northern Ireland here, and I'm not sure if this will connect with England. In Northern Ireland, evangelism in conservative circles means telling people one of two things. It means telling them that they need to be born again, or it means telling them that they need to be saved. Now, I believe both of those things are true. And neither of those things are the gospel. Both of those things are true and neither of them are the gospel. They are outworkings and implications of the gospel. But they are not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the coming in our flesh and the obedience and the death for our sins and the resurrection to glory of the Son of God, the second man and the last Adam. And most people need far more of that gospel indicative, that gospel story, before we give them any gospel imperatives. I'm not saying the imperatives shouldn't be there. I'm saying they need to know more about Jesus before we tell them what to do with Jesus. So brothers, remember the indicatives and the imperatives. Don't fear that by concentrating on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we're somehow going to short-circuit our evangelism. It's what we need more than anything else, is just a relentless focus on our Lord Jesus Christ in the context of what Scripture says about him and what he has done for us. And when we do that, we so often find what Peter found on the day of Pentecost. When people hear the indicatives of what happened In Christ's coming and death and resurrection, they then say, what must I do? And one of our besetting sins in Northern Ireland is to give people almost no understanding of the indicatives of the gospel. Never to check what they actually know about the indicatives of the gospel. But press upon them with often terrifying psychological force the imperatives of the gospel. Where almost every tree on every black spot corner has a sign saying, you must be born again. As if the gospel can be explained on a piece of wood, on a bad corner of a road. Give people the indicatives. Give them the story of the gospel. Tell them about the last Adam and the second man before you tell them what they need to do. Thirdly, if we have learned anything over these last two days, and I certainly learned this over the last two days, is if we're to preach well, 
We need to keep thinking. If we are to preach better, and don't you want to preach better? I know I want to preach better. If we're going to preach better, we need to keep learning and keep studying. I'm going to give you a couple of quotations here from Augustine as we finish. Augustine says this. The wisdom of what a person says is in direct proportion to his progress in learning the Holy Scriptures. I'm not speaking of intensive reading or memorization, but real understanding and careful investigation of the meaning. Those who remember the words less closely but penetrate to the heart of Scripture with the eyes of their own heart are much to be preferred. The wisdom of what a person says is in direct proportion to his progress in learning the Holy Scriptures. And haven't you been struck over the last few days how much you need to learn the Holy Scriptures? I guess there are none of us here over the last few days who have thought, well, that's all right then. I've got that all sorted. And brothers, give yourselves afresh to study and to learning and to preparing to preach. Because what a person says, the wisdom of what a person says, is in direct proportion to his progress in learning the Holy Scriptures. Finally, fourthly, there's tremendous explanatory and apologetic power in the consent of all the parts of Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. You can tell Lane I quoted that. It's going to be very hard to convince anybody in modern Britain, very hard to convince anybody in modern Britain of the historical Adam without convincing them of the historical Christ. We can't convince them of a part of Scripture apologetically. It is Scripture as Scripture stands in the consent of all its parts that has the power to convince people of its truth. And preaching that draws scripture together, that is both a genuine exposition of a passage, but in the context of the great story of the Bible, has tremendous explanatory power. It is the one thing that persuades people that scripture is not just a wax nose that you change and fit to mean whatever you want. Once they see that there is a big story and that you connect the passages together... It has tremendous apologetic power to move people's hearts. Because Edwards reminds us, beauty is harmony. And harmony is consent of parts and agreement. And when people see that harmony and they see that consent, it moves them by the power of truth. I um, used to live in America, so I heard Tim Keller a few times in New York. And I once heard him preach a sermon on Uh, on a subject from the Gospels, but drawing in the Old Testament and showing people from the Old Testament the context of what Jesus was saying and how it filled the storyline of the Bible. And it was deeply, deeply moving to see how Scripture fitted together. And we're looking around at the end of the sermon and look at this huge crowd of young adults and, and people with just tears in their eyes, people deeply moved by truth because of the consent of all the parts of scripture. Augustine said this and this is out of his book Christian Teaching, which is a wonderful book, particularly the fourth chapter, and he says this The aim of our orator then when speaking of things that are just and holy and good, and he should not speak of anything else, the aim that I, I say that he pursues to the best of his ability when he speaks of these things is to be listened to with understanding, 
with pleasure and with obedience. He should be in no doubt that any ability he has, and however much he has, derives more from his devotion to prayer than his dedication to oratory. And so by praying for himself and for those he is about to address, he must become a man of prayer before becoming a man of words. As the hour of his address approaches, before he opens his thrusting lips, he should lift his thirsting soul to God so that he may utter what he has drunk in and pour out what has filled him. Understanding, then pleasure, and then obedience. I mean, you know this yourselves, don't you, when you hear something or read something? What pleasure do you take in something that you do not understand? None whatsoever. And what pleasure do you take in something that you do understand? Great pleasure. And Augustine says that a Christian preacher, the Christian teacher, is to seek first for understanding and then pleasure, holy pleasure in understanding God's word as people hear it. And then obedience. And I think that the Adam, new Adam paradigm and the creation, new creation paradigm is one of the most thrilling and beautiful aspects of divine revelation. A good sermon on the last Adam and the second man put in its biblical historical context and filled out in the eschatological hope of the kingdom of God, is a thrilling thing to hear. It brings understanding to the mind. It brings pleasure to the heart. And brings obedience to the will. Amen.